in today's episode. Don't don't be put off by you'll get lots of negativity. I still get friends of mine who will say, but it doesn't really work, does it? You know, it, it, it doesn't work all, if it's wet, it doesn't work, or if it's too dry, it doesn't work. You know, there's there's always that, but, but that's just farming. I mean, you know, the weather can come along and change whatever you're doing very quickly and make a good thing look bad and a bad thing look good. Welcome to CropCast. I am Tiffany Stevenson, and today we're joined by Neil White from Green Now Farm in Berwickshire. Farmers Weekly, Arable Farmer of the Year 2023. I'm very excited to be talking to him today about his journey to strip tillage. Welcome, Neil. Would you like to begin by giving an overview of your farm? Yeah, okay. Um, Yeah, my name's Neil White. I'm an arable farmer in Berwickshire. I feel very lucky to farm in the area I farm in. I think it is one of the best places in the world to do what I do, and I genuinely believe that. Um, but yeah, so I, we used to have livestock up until the late 90s, then the cattle went away. Then uh, we put the sheep away just after the foot and mouth, just early 2000s. So we're purely arable now. Um, not a big farm, a, a traditional sort of family size farm. It was 150 hectares owned at home, and then I contract farm another 80 hectares, 12 miles up the road at Gordon. But uh, And then there's some grassland up there as well that I, I sort of manage as well. But uh, it's predominantly, you know, about 230, 240 hectares of, of arable ground. So I do that predominantly myself. I get um, harvest help with grain carting and some high-level spraying and things done. But the idea is to do almost it all myself um, over that ground. And I do some demo work for Missouri, who um, I, I'm an ambassador for. And uh, and I do some contracting with my combine as well, but that varies year to year. Um, so yeah, it's it's arable crops. So we have winter barley, winter oilseed rape, winter wheat, uh, spring barley, spring beans, and sometimes spring oats, and then the cover crops on top of that. So how long have you been farming at Green Now for? Yeah, well, the family's been farming green now uh, since 1913, so we've been in a long time. Um, we were fishermen and butchers, the, the family, before that, and um, one of the sons took on the butcher shop in Churnside, and, and they took a little bit of ground, obviously, to keep the stock on before they were killed, and uh, and then took some more ground, and then they took a tenancy here on uh, with the Swintons um, on Kimmerjim Estates, so they took the, the tenancy here and we were tenants here and then the opportunity in the 60s came up to buy the farm and my father bought the farm and then uh, we had we had some ground that we used to rent from my uncle which we bought in the 90s um, next door which brought it up to to the 150 hectares at home. So it's, it's, it's not a big farm but we have been in a long time. <laughs> yeah and you definitely sound like you've made a lot of changes so what moved to getting rid of the cattle and then the sheep yeah well the the big push I must admit I'm probably guilty for for the cattle going away um in the 90s we we had store cattle we never had kind of breeding cattle but we always had store cattle but we had a really really bad handling system and and there were no grants or anything in those days for improving anything like that on the farm so it was becoming quite dangerous and it was becoming a bit of a rodeo and uh, and it was sort of, right, do we invest in this or do we make some changes? 
and so we we put the cattle away eventually and uh, and and so it increased the the breeding uh ewe stock that we had and it was up kind of maybe at 300 for a while and and we found them we had a good handling system for the sheep so it sort of lent itself to to making that easier and uh and so we we, we put the sheep numbers up and and did that until until the foot and mouth and my dad well all of us found that really difficult but my father especially and the chap who used to help us at lambing was retiring and we thought well maybe that's just a time to to put the sheep away and i think the farm wasn't big enough to run too many different enterprises um so we thought okay you know well it's good ground we'll we'll specialize in our in our cereals so that was kind of what made that i do i do miss having the livestock around i mean i've got sheep grazing cover crops just now but they're they're a neighbor's sheep um i think i think livestock livestock is a good thing for the farm it's a good thing for the kids when you're growing up as well it teaches you an awful lot about life and death and <laughs> and the futility of it all sometimes but um i think pet lambs can teach you teach you an awful lot about life and death but um but it's just it's just the way the system works i i, I don't think i could I, I hope that people would think i make a better job of my arable because i'm not splitting my time between lots of different things that that's fair enough it'll be a lot of work when you're just yourself as well trying to do too many enterprises at the same time yeah i do like i do like to have good holidays as well i think i think time off farm is really important and uh i wrote in my in my in my entry to the farmers weekly awards i wrote that my kids tease me about being a part-time farmer and and i said i take that on the chin and i put it back to them and say well if i if i'm running the farm that i'm running i can make a few pounds um i've got time that you think I'm getting all the work done, but I'm still doing it part time. Um, then I think that's probably success. You know, I I don't want to spend twenty four hours a day doing my job. I want to find some kind of balance, and everybody's balance is different. But you know, I get a bit of stick off the livestock farmers that I know about. You know, being part time and having all my weekends off. And I said, well, you know, at harvest time it's not like that. But I quite like the all in, all out. You know, I like being really busy when I'm busy, and then really quiet when I'm quiet so we can have family holidays and things like that and it's not a problem. But you do need to have a good work-life balance and I actually think everybody in the industry is beginning to understand that a little bit more so it's good to hear that's one of the key things in your head. Yeah it definitely is and I, and I think I think you're right I think I think there's you know everybody appreciates it's hard work and, and you if you want to make it work, it, it is hard work and nobody shies away from that. But I think there has to be some kind of balance. You know, it's not it's not just work. You know, it, it is your life after all. And, and uh, yeah, to incorporate, you know, you're always there. It's on the doorstep. So I think, you know, to be able to get away from it. And that's not easy with livestock because it is tying. But yeah. um, when the livestock went away, you know, we often say once once you put livestock away, you very, very rarely get them back again. And, and that's why it was a big decision. Um, but yeah, you do you do realise that you have some freedom. <laughs> yeah, but if you've got that balance and you're enjoying the arable, then it's worthwhile. So you've made a lot of changes over the years to the arable system because I'm assuming when you had the livestock, you were still ploughing then. And now you've moved away from that and you're now strip tilling. 
Do you want to tell us a little bit about the journey from having the plough to getting script hill? Yeah, yeah. I mean, what I always point out is, you know, I, I strip till I'm not an evangelist about it. You know, I I I don't demonise the plough, um, but I just integrated the sort of strip tilling into my system. You know, I think I think this area is really well placed in Scotland as a whole, really, to to change tillage practices. I don't think it's the risk that it is down south. I think we start from a very different place. You know, we don't have the we don't have the really low organic matter soils that they have in some of these places down south. You know, our soil is really healthy and we have a rotation. I mean, it's all these things. I think in 1913, my grandfather would have understood a lot of the rhetoric that goes on at the moment, you know, about rotation, about soil health, about integrating livestock. It was really all the things that they were doing then. And and so I, I think I think we started from quite a good place. I mean, the, the, I suppose the process kind of began when the livestock went away because we, we had less grass in our system. You know, I still had grass in and we took a late cut hay. It was in a scheme and, and then we, we grazed it and then we'd plough it out for the wheat. But uh, then I, I was needing more break crops and we'd always grown pulses. But, you know, there is a risk with pulses. So we introduced the oilseed rape and, and that made us look at at reducing the tillage um, so I had a contractor in that would be 20 kind of 2013 2012 so we had run we had run the plow based cereal system for quite a while and it wasn't broken you know it was working well for us um, but I just when we put the oilseed rape in you know we got a contractor in and they did it with a subsoiler and it worked really well and I just sort of thought I couldn't really justify buying a bigger tractor to pull a subsoiler to to keep that control of doing my own sowing. So I then started to look for a drill that could sow lots of different crops, you know, without altering the drill itself. So that was where we ended up going down the, the route I'm going. Uh, we went down with the Missouri because it, it sowed lots of different crops. And so I ran initially, it was really just to sow the rape and then to sow maybe the wheat after rape and the wheat after beans. And so I ran I ran the two systems for a while, only maybe sowing 20% of my ground with the strip till and still ploughing and combi drilling the rest. And then just over the years, comparing comparing yield and, and how much it was the growing costs and the tillage costs just slowly moved to what was working best. And, and now I'm 100%. Um, without the combination in the plough. You said that you were looking at what your yields were doing. Did you find that they dropped for a couple of years until you got the hang of it and the soil got used to what you were doing? Or did you find that you managed to keep them up? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a strange one, that, because I didn't, I didn't really see a drop in yields, but you still get variation. You know, I... I Whatever system you have, some fields will do better than others. Some crops will yield better than others. Some varieties will yield better than others. So when I was running the two systems, I was trying to be careful that I was still treating them the same with agronomy and fertilizer. But but I, so I didn't really, I, don't, I, I wouldn't really say I saw a, a drop in yield. Um, and now whether that's because the strip till isn't just, a pure sort of disc drill 
you know, there is a bit of soil movement. And I think I think that does help, you know, with the with the nitrogen in the soil and I, and I, and I think it does help with establishment. But also I don't think I don't think my soils were were depleted. I don't think they were lacking. I wasn't using the strip till to fix a problem. I was using it because I thought it was the best way to establish my crops. So did you have to change anything in your mindset about what you were doing? Um, and because I know it's very easy to go out and you go and look at this beautifully cultivated field that's being ploughed and power harrowed. And it's a big shift moving to having a more direct drill system. I think I think that's right up there with one of the one of the biggest challenges is that mindset, that precondition that you have in your brain. And you, I didn't realize just how how ingrained that was in me. Um, but yeah, you're, you're conditioned to brown soil and straight green lines, you know, and that is what a proper crop establishment looks like. And, and you know, I, I've said a few times, I still, I still hanker after that occasionally. You know, I'll look at a neighbor's crop, and it's you know it's all nice flat brown soil with the green lines and you think yeah you know that that's really put in properly but it it's all done with your eye that you know that's that's not based on on the soil or the the rooting or the crop density or anything like that that's just purely aesthetic you know and so i i constantly remind myself that it's not about that it's not about how it looks at sowing because you know, direct drilling, strip tilling, it does have a scruffy look. And it, it sometimes going into the winter, you know, it, it it does have a kind of a look like you maybe not tried hard enough. And I used to find that with the especially with my second wheats. I try I try not to grow too many second wheats, but I found it mostly on the second wheats where you would you would come out the field and shut the gate and think, that's not enough effort. To do that properly, right. you know, and if it was a nice spell of weather, you think, yeah, I should have taken more time, but but there was no need. There was no need to do any more tillage. There was no need to move any more soil. But you just felt that somehow it wasn't enough, you know. So that is a challenge to to stop yourself moving soil to purely for your eye is definitely a big challenge, and I, I've I've tried to resist that all the way through and. The only additional tillage I don't subsoil. I don't. I don't have a light cultivation. I have a straw rake and my drill, and that is all I. That is all I use on my cereals. It, I, I can definitely see why it's a difficult mindset to change, but you almost feel like you just need to walk out the field, close the gate, and close your eyes. <laughs> yeah, and 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 you do have to. It's difficult at the beginning because you don't have that sort of bank of reassurance. Uh, because as I say, going into the winter, sometimes it'll look quite scruffy and, and, you know, until it grows up above the stubble in the spring, you know, you're, you're thinking, gosh, it's taken a long time to get established in the spring. And, but, you know, once it gets above that and you can see that the, the crops there, I think, I think it's had a lot of advantages. We, we get these weather events now and, you know, we'll, we'll get this long wet spell. And last year, you know, we had that a month with no precipitation at all, middle of May to the middle of June. And lots of people's spring barleys that had had a lot of tillage, you know, were well established, but then hit that point and you could see them stressing and, and you know, they they just didn't grow. They just sat there. And and I definitely 
think it was a noticeable benefit. You know, my crops, because I hadn't had that soil movement, you know, there's a big, there's a big gap between my rows and none of that, that, that's not moved, you know, from the year before. So the moisture was still in there and the roots grow into that. And, and it was a, it was noticeable that they hung on a lot better because the soil didn't have that, hadn't lost that moisture. That's really interesting. So what changes if you had to make to things like the timing of sowing your crops because you've moved tillage system? Yeah, I think that's a really good question because that is that is something that somebody, you know, talking to other farmers and knowledge transfer is a really key thing. And that's one of the things that always stuck with me. There was a couple of things. Somebody said, you know, you have to make that decision when you're going to sow because the drills that are out there will sow in any condition and it'll look like it's making an okay job. But, you know, you have to make that call when it's too wet. But but also, I think the other bit of advice that was key was was to go early in the autumn and later in the spring. And so early in the autumn is fine for me because I have no patience at all and I like to just crack on when conditions are good. Later in the spring is is harder for me. It's difficult when other people are sowing and you're not getting on sowing. Um, but I think I think just that kind of two weeks earlier in the autumn and sometimes two weeks later in the spring give the time give time for the soil to dry fully through the the top profile, and and that does make a difference. Last year in the spring, I have to be honest, um, it was difficult to do that because we had this sort of wet, then a couple of dry days, then another wet day. So I think. I think last year I felt that when I put my barley in, that was the first time I'd really compromised um, the seed bed. But actually, it worked out. It worked out fine with really good good crops of spring stuff last year because it got it. It was okay after it went in. Um, but but yeah, there was a couple of bits where I sort of thought, well, you know, that's not ideal. But percentage wise it was a small part of the field so we just kept going but actually some of those bits were the heavier bits of ground and they held the moisture better and so they ended up really good so but yeah timing is is key I think conditions if the conditions are right just get it in fair enough so if you're sowing two weeks earlier in the autumn there's probably a higher risk of disease pressure how do you find it yeah well I've what I tried to do with most of my stuff is to just carry on, you know, not make big alterations to my fertilizer and my spray plan. So I, I, I was running the same plan on my direct drilled and my combi drilled things when I ran the two systems together. But I do genuinely think there are benefits. You know, it's quite a wide row. It's a 15 centimeter band and then, and then a 23 centimeter gap between those bands so there is quite a space between my bands and and I think that has helped with light inception and also that airflow through the crop so I I I think some of the yes I'm getting the crops established earlier but I think I've still got that light and and airflow through them so I I think the crops are actually cleaner um, than than they used to be I also have to be honest and say that you know, the varieties I choose now, especially in the wheat, um, are, are varieties that have a good untreated yield. So I am looking for good agronomy, uh, agronomy um, when I'm choosing my, my varieties. So I, 
I, I think on that side, I'm, I'm, it's, it's all positive, really. Um, and I've reduced my nitrogen rates a bit, and I've cut fungicide out on my wheats. And, and, you know, I don't use an insecticide on my beans or my pulses. So, you know, there's, there's little things I've dropped out, but that's, that's to do with variety as well as tillage. Yeah, but it's still good to hear that you've considered what's going in and then deciding what your plans are accordingly, because if you can use the variety strengths as well and see if you're having to do those extra passes, it's useful. Yeah, and, and, and that is one of the things, you know, I don't want to be drawn into having to do lots of more passes with a sprayer. And obviously, you know, glyphosate is one of the things that, that I am using. Um, and people often say about that, and I, I do spray my stubbles at the beginning. Um, so one of the one of the things I was trying to do to counteract that, um, the last two or three years at home, I haven't sprayed cereals with glyphosate. So I, I don't spray my crops with glyphosate. So I've, I've tried to make it that I'm not really using much more glyphosate. I'm just putting it on the stubble to give me a clean start rather than on the crop. Um, because I, I am aware that obviously my system is quite reliant on that. And I've tried, I tried mechanical means to control other things. I use the straw rake on the, on the rape stubbles, um, maybe try and rake it twice, maybe 10 days apart if the weather's good. And I've found that that halves the slug numbers each pass through with the rake. It throws the eggs onto the top and also gives the, the slugs that are there a bit of a, a bit of a kicking and uh, and if it's dry weather you know they die and so i i think there are mechanical means to control that i just struggle with any kind of mechanical means to to control weeds so i think i think if you can get a chit of weeds and volunteers and then give them one spray of glyphosate before you sow then i think that's that's the best it's working for me just now anyway as long as it's working because weeds are very difficult to control so with the straw, how much are you removing? Are you leaving it in the field? What what do you do with it? Yeah, well, with the old system, we were baling everything. Um, um, well, apart from the apart from the, the the legumes, obviously we're chopping that back in. But um, I have a biomass boiler in twenty twelve. Um, made the decision that we were going to develop um, so, uh, some sheds on the farm to use as offices for my wife's business. So um, we were looking into heating systems and, and there was opportunities at the time to for RHI to put in biomass heating. So we put in a, a very simple British-made Farm 2000 boiler, which burns big bales of rape straw. And so we, we put that in. So I don't, I, I don't chop all my rape anymore. We bale maybe two-thirds of the acreage of our rape and that's removed and I think that does reduce the slug pressure in the in the rape but also obviously I think it's a really good sustainable heat source I mean sometimes I'm taking that you know a thousand meters from the field to my shed to 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 put into the sheds and that provides all our you know 40 acres of rape will provide all our heat for a year for the house and the offices uh, the heat and hot water. So, so you know, uh, we're we're bailing we're bailing that. But over the years, I've I've the chopper on the combine has improved. 
Um, I changed my combine three years ago and I, I got the power spreader put on it. So last year I would, would be the most straw I've ever chopped. Um, and it wouldn't, it wouldn't be 50%, but we're getting closer to that 50% chopped. Um, and I think, I think my headlands are benefit. I chop all the headlands now and I think they've benefited from that, but I, I've never really wanted to work towards chopping all my straw. Um, because I think chopping a, a lot of straw year after year maybe isn't the best thing for my soils. But you are getting the benefit of being able to put it in your biomass boiler and you're using it basically on farm and you've got a benefit from it as well. So it seems like it works quite well for you. Yeah, it does. And I think all these little bits of the system have to tie in together. You know, um, that's the, the thing about about my farm it's not a big farm but i like to think that all the little bits fit in together you know the the workload and the biomass and we put solar in as well and you know the, there's lots of lif- different bits to the business that that seem to complement each other i think good good you mentioned at the beginning that you had cover crops which you had lambs grazing on at the moment and um, so what cover crops do you use when are you getting them established yeah, um, I, I have been using cover crops. We've, we've actually used companion crops before I used the cover crops. Um, the companion crops, we uh, tried a, a clover and um, buckwheat, sowing that with uh, when we were putting the oilseed rape in. So I, I left the rape on its own in the one hopper and then mixed, mixed the clover with the slug pellets, which I'm putting on at the same time with the drill. It has three different hoppers, so you can put three different products on variable rate um, at the same time. So I did that, and the buckwheat, the buckwheat and the rape work quite well. But the clover, we had a really bad establishment, and it really you couldn't really get any conclusion from that. The drill can do it okay, but but you know, but even even with the buckwheat and the and the rape, I still found the slugs, the slugs and flea beetles still ate the the rape. <laughs> and didn't eat the buckwheat so I, I it was an interesting experiment and if if they were going to maybe pay me through a, a scheme to put companion crops in I know I can do it but I think the I think the benefits were quite hard to quantify um, in that respect but the cover crops the cover cropping I'm using overwintered cover crops so so they'll go in after a winter crop and then be followed by a spring crop. So it's not in any scheme. You know, I'm not, it's not instead of a crop. It's just instead of having bare stubble or plowing over the winter. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to keep that as cheap and cheerful as I can. So I, I've, I grow spring beans. So I keep, I keep some farm saved spring beans and then mix that with a radish and a phacelia and uh, put the beans down the front leg at kind of two inches deep and then the phacelia and the radish out out the, the coulters at, uh, you know, just about a half an inch an inch. And then one year I put clover in the pelleter and put the clover out out the back. So we can do all that in one pass, um, which is which is really handy. And, and that works quite well. The reason I put the spring beans in, and in the past we've had buckwheat as well, is because... Down south, when they're using these, they're trying to retain moisture. Whereas in Scotland, as you know, um, we're actually waiting for the ground to dry in the spring. So moisture retention isn't usually a problem at that time of year. So 
and was looking for something that a good hard frost will kill off some of the cover. So the spring beans, you know, at the moment I'm looking out the window here and, and the spring beans in that field are black, you know, and but the facelia and the radish are still there. So it's opened up the cover a little bit. So hopefully, you know, in time that'll that'll make it easier to, to dry off because I wasn't guaranteed I was going to graze it. Um, so I was looking for it to be quite open. But uh, now the sheep are on it, you know, hopefully they'll take it right down and then we'll take the sheep off and we'll let it kind of green up a little bit and then spray it off and then sew it. Do you find you usually get quite a good establishment year on year or not? Because I know a lot of people are concerned about trying to get it in and actually having actually doing something over the winter instead of just seeing these little tiny plants that never really got away. Yeah, well, I've been quite lucky in the past, but this year, yes. The, the short answer is yes, it, it, I've, I have struggled this year, and that was just about timing. Um, the crop... The crop I'm looking out on here, which is usually unusual. Normally, the one outside your house is the really bad one. But um, the one outside the house here is actually established early. It went in in August. Um, it went in after wheat, um, but the wheat was cut early. So it went in in August. And then a similar mix went in in September. And it, it wouldn't be a full month later. Uh, and it went into good conditions. But just the, just the lateness, I don't know. It, it's... I often think crops are a little bit like livestock. You know, once something's struggling a bit or gets off to a slow start, it seems to attract, you know, negative attention. And, and so, you know, it got, had some flea beetle damage, some slug damage. It then sat wet for a while. And I mean, it struggled all the way through the winter. I mean, I won't be grazing it. I'll just, I'll just take it through and then spray it off. You know, there's just not the biomass on it. Um, so, yes, I think, I think talking of, various different cover crops and things is very easy to do but in Scotland it's not easy to get them established in time to have a really good biomass crop. Um, yeah well it clearly just shows with that the same mix and sowing one in August one in September it's clear to see the difference so. Yeah and you wouldn't just... really think September was all that late you know but you know it, it just was too late this year. Yeah fair enough. And do you quite like trying to bring the sheep on each year if you can? Um, yeah, if you'd asked me on Boxing Day last year, I would have said, no, I don't, because I was chasing the sheep around the neighbour's oilseed rape for about most of Boxing Day last year. The whole family were involved, which was great fun. They, they really enjoyed it. Uh, <laughs> family because, bonding. Well, it, it, yeah, yes, it was. It was, and it wasn't too bad. But, um, but it did remind me that, that most of Berwickshire, you know, they, they talk about livestock integration. And and yes, in principle, why wouldn't you? But there's not that much of Berwickshire is well-fenced anymore, you know? And, and so if you're going to start livestock integration, yes, you can put up electric nets and things. But, you know, once you start going round fields, you know, you need a lot of netting. And, and as I found, once they get out of your field, they can run over most of Berwickshire before they get another fence and a gate. You know, it, it's, and it is something that you do have to consider. You know, I've, I've tried to keep my fences reasonable and I have gates on all the gateways and things, but even then, you know, there's, there's still gaps and, and weak points that sheep love to find. So, so yeah, I, I haven't, I, I do, I do think there's a place for the livestock. Um, I don't think, I think it's probably the best way to put on muck is just straight out the back of the animal. 
Yeah. Um, I'm not. I get quite a lot of stick from from livestock farmers saying that what my farm needs is muck, and I often respond in the fact that actually I've watched a lot of muck being put in a midden and spread in really bad conditions, and you can see the damage to the soil. And you can see that area of the field, you know, struggle, and you can see the next crop come and the the compaction being visible in it. So I think muck is a really good thing, but it it can cause a lot of problems as well. I put hen muck onto my winter barley stubble before the oilseed rape goes in, because often the ground's drier at at that time of year. Um, but but yeah, I think straight out the animals probably as good a way as any yeah that's fair enough but there's definitely the difficulty with fencing it's they do have a tendency to try and escape as well <laughs> they definitely do <laughs> so what technology are you now looking at on your farm and using on your farm to help benefit you yeah um well there's there's sort of simple from the simple stuff which which is sort of rtk and and auto steer I have auto steer on my drill tractor, which I use for the rolling as well, and I've auto put auto steer on the combine as well, and and you know I'm fortunate because I get direct benefit from that because I'm actually driving the machine, and and I I must admit that has made a massive difference um, to me. I I you know I I thought it was slightly gimmicky, and and you know I used to take a lot of pride in driving as straight as I could, you know, when I was sewing and things, and you think I'm not overlapping that much. But, but you know, just the lack of stress at the, you know, it, it's so much easier. And I'm harvest time, you know, I'm trying to conduct my whole business from the cab. Yeah. So, you know, you're, you're trying to organize lorries coming in and straw going out and bailing getting done. And, and you're trying to, you know, spin a few plates. And if the, if the machine you're in is steering itself, yes, you don't want to lose concentration, but, but if you can at least, you know, speak on your phone and, and make notes or, or, or just give a bit of your attention to your phone call, it can make a big difference. And so that technology has helped me a lot, I have to admit. But um, when I changed the, well, and I, I've yield mapped for quite a long time. Um, we put that on the combine previous to this one. And that has been really interesting. Um, I, I've found that I've maybe not analysed it quite as much as I probably could have over the years, but I, I do find the yield mapping, it often tells you what you, you you know or confirms what you already know, especially when I'm on the combine and, you know, yeah. I'm doing all the groundwork and stuff. So I do I do know the ground quite well, but but that's been a good thing and tied in with the, the variable rate lime spreading and, and well, we have a, a facility to do P and K and N as well, but I don't use that. But you know, we're the anal the field analysis and and getting a variable rate map for all those inputs. Um, I think can only be a good thing. You know, I, I've I've done that for quite a while, and and I wanted the when I changed my drill in twenty nineteen, I, I bought I bought a second hand drill originally, uh, Missouri strip till in in about twenty fifteen, and then I changed it in twenty nineteen for one that had seed and fertilizer. And that also gave me the ability to do variable rate. So I, I looked into that and and being a bit tight, I thought instead of shelling out and getting them to map my soil, um, I would draw the maps myself and give 
give soil their due, um, they when I spoke to them about it, they said, yeah, if you want to do that, that's fine. So I drew variable rate maps on soil type. And uh, so we still use them. I use those. So I, I do variable rate seed, uh, which I think has really helped even up the crops. And my, my thinking with just doing the seed was if I, if I varied the seed rate and had an even establishment, it made sense to then treat that crop all the same yeah. rather than then varying the inputs. So, so that kind of suited my system. So I, I do that. And, and this year, I, I don't use variable rate on the oilseed rape seed because it's such a low rate. So I use that map on the slug pellets instead um, because I just use it on the pelleter on the drill. So I vary the slug pellet rate according to soil type. So the heavier ground gets a higher rate. And so, so I, I use technology in, in that respect. And, it, and it's, it's been a big benefit. It's not, it's, you know, it's not just gimmick. I, I have found big benefits with that technology. It's amazing what technology can do nowadays. Um, you said you've got your yield maps. Are they evener now that you are trying to variably um, sow the crops? Yes, I think it. I think it is taking out some of the variability. Yeah, uh, and I would. I would actually. I would actually say that the moving away from the plow and power harrow has has brought about an evenness in my soil type as well. I think it's improved some of the some of the bits of ground that used to come up like cheese, and used to you know have that bake hard in the sun or go like cheese. You know, some of those are are becoming a lot more workable, a lot more malleable soils. There's a lot more tilth, and so I think that has helped as well. You know, even out some of the the differences that we had, and and we're in the Merse here, so you know our soil varies from one end of the field to the other quite dramatically in some of my fields. You know, I've got pure sand in some, in, in a couple of fields. And then at the other end of the field, you know, there's there's a clay loam. So so there is quite a variation, but I do think it's evening that that variation out a bit. So yeah, and, and the yield mapping does, does seem to show that, yeah. It's great to hear that you're seeing such benefits, having consistently stuck with your strip till for a number of years and you're seeing the benefits now as well. So everybody's talking about biodiversity and the environment just now. Are there any environmental measures that you're taking on your farm? Yeah, well, I've always looked at schemes and, and tried to enter schemes, you know, when I think they work for my farm. And, you know, even way back when we had the livestock, you know, we, we did a late cut hay and cut it from the middle out for the corn crakes and then it went into a scheme. And, you know, so I've always tried to look at that. And so with margins, I think I think the standard stuff that lots of people around here did, you know, we put a pond in and we put some species-rich grassland in and and we, we filled the holes in the hedges. We have good hedges on the farm, you know, but there was gaps and we filled filled them in. And, and I... I I like the grass margins. I think I think the grass margins are are quite a good thing. You know, I've I've got cottages here and houses down at one of the other bits, and so we put margins in round the boundaries of the fields that were near the houses, just to keep keep the equipment a bit further away from their gardens and things like that. And and so I I think they were things that I might have ended up doing anyway. Um, but I do think I do think there is a big benefit, you know, for biodiversity and. And the wildlife with those 
things that I've done on the farm. I think I think there's a huge amount of wildlife on my farm. I have a, roughly between a 70 and 100 grey partridge here every year. And we don't put birds down. You know, they're here, be, you know, because of what we do here. And, and you know, that we're overrun with, with brown hair and things. So, you know, there's a lot of red species indicators that are they're actually here you know so so i think the biodiversity on on the the arable farms in this area is actually very underrated you know we've we do a lot more than we get credit for and somehow we have to try and make people aware of what's actually out there and, and what we are doing and looking forward you know i know there's nothing set in stone quite yet with the schemes going forward but the consultations that are out there I'm doing quite a lot of the things that that they are asking for, you know, the cover cropping and the margins and and reduced tillage and things. So it it doesn't look quite so scary um, for me. It just depends where the money goes and how it's divided up. But actual legislation doesn't look too bad um, going forward. But but no, I think the biodiversity. I, I think I've noticed quite a difference on the on the farm over the years, throughout the different schemes and things i think you you're in a good position because you already are doing your cover cropping and your margins as you say and yeah none of us know what's coming so we're just gonna have to wait and see and it'll probably benefit some farms and other farms won't be quite as happy but that's how it always seems to work out so we've heard all about what you're doing on the farm what drives you to get up out of bed in the mornings to do it? Yeah, that's a <laughs> that's a good question. Well, I I like I like new things. Um, you know, I like I like to explore. You know, that was I did most of the research when I I changed my tillage. I did most of that online, um, and then you know contacted the manufacturers directly, and then you know Missouri were were good enough to say, oh, well, there's somebody near you in the area. And I went to that farm and spoke to that farmer. And and the farmer to farmer thing was really important to me. And it, and it, and it, I, I realized the value of that then. So, so to bring it back to your question, you know, I, I'm, I'm an ambassador for Missouri, um, the, the drill that I have. And I'm also an ambassador for Valtra as well, but they do it in a, in a slightly hands-off way. But, but through Missouri, you know, I've had farm visits and uh, here and uh, and people come and sort of discuss the drill, have a look at the drill, have a look at the crops and things like that. So I really enjoy that side of things. Um, I speak to people regularly about about the drill and help sort of not not sell it, but but just sort of reassure people in some of the things, you know, because honest farmer feedback is really important when you're trying to make big decisions like that. And and it was important to me, so I I appreciated the honesty of the farmers that I spoke to. So, so that kind of keeps me going. That's something different that that I enjoy. But, but also just looking at my system and wondering, you know, how I can how I could tweak it or change it or how I could I would like to be able to I would like to do more. I would like to make my farm bigger. Um, it's very difficult to buy land in this area. Um, so so you know I've I've done demo work with Missouri and, and, you know, some contract work. And I'd like to maybe expand that and do more contracting. And, and I think, I think that's a way that people can sort of give strip tilling or direct drilling a go. You know, they can, 
they can maybe get a field done or a couple of fields done or a bit of one crop done and 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 give it a try on the farm without buying the equipment themselves i do think that is the biggest barrier to some of the changes people want to make is the cost of the equipment so you are right being able to go and do a field for someone it could in the long run allow them to go and change their system because they've seen it working seeing how they've got on with it and decide if they like it or not yeah and I, and I think you know sometimes to mitigate that cost we think a capital a capital scheme you know would be a good idea um, and so we say oh well we'll, we'll uh, we should maybe get 50 percent of uh, the cost of a new drill but you know being a little bit selfish because I have a drill I think well really it would be better rewarding people for the outcomes and paying them maybe so much a hectare for the stuff that they did with no tillage or with reduced tillage, instead of making them buy a drill, which they maybe felt a bit pushed into buying and then might not even use on all their ground, you know, they might be better sharing a drill with a group of people and putting a portion of their crops in, maybe put their rape in or their wheat after rape or their beans or, you know, finding where it would work rather than just doing it because they feel forced to do it or because the capital grant scheme's there. So I think I think they'd be better weighing the payments onto what you're actually doing rather than what you buy. Yeah, it definitely is. So what's next for your business? What are you changing next? What's your new idea? What, what do you have ticking away in the background? Yeah, um, I suppose it's nothing major I, I feel I've I feel I've still got you know it's only the second year that I've direct drilled all my crops and um, so I still I still think I've got maybe tweaking on that you know it's uh, whether to go with a full cover crop on all my winter stubbles or whether to do what I'm doing just now and have a portion that's just overwintered stubble because I think I think that does give me certain benefits you know I'm putting lime on onto those stubbles and things because I've got that wider window. I'm not trying to go on ploughing and things. Um, and on the business side, I'm, I'm still just trying to keep machinery up to date. I've made some changes round about the steading here, taking old buildings down and put, you know, flat floor concrete buildings up. So I've tried to, I've tried to move things on in that respect. Um, but as major changes, I think I've got my kind of tillage system working well, it's just trying to grow that, trying to trying to maybe get more acres to put in, and to maybe to maybe push it on a bit further in that respect. Um, but yeah, and and also you know you 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 talked about on the biodiversity thing. If you tie that in with the carbon sort of side of things, I'm also I'm also looking for you know there's some contracts coming out now which have are tied in with carbon and I know carbon's a real sort of emotive subject um but it is happening and if if I could get a a reward or a premium through the market you know that's really what I'm I would like to get and I you know when I do the agricult calculations my farm sits with a very low you know we're 0.32 kilos of co2 per kilo of production you know, and that's a really low figure. And, you know, the, that's got a bit of interest now with end users. And they're saying, oh, well, actually, you know, and I'm not on about selling them my green credentials. I don't want to do that. I just want to get a premium 
for my low carbon product. You know, so I, I would I'd like to investigate that further and see if there's more opportunity in that respect. Yeah, there's definitely potential for that because I know um likes of the dairy is already trying to do things like that. Um because all all these processors and producers are needing to lower their carbon footprint as well. So they're wanting farmers who are doing a good job to begin with. So it'll be interesting to see um what happens going forward with it as well. So just to finish up, what would your three top tips be to other farmers? Um, I would I would say the top tips for other farmers if they're looking to change their tillage, um, I would I would say to to find somebody that they they think is honest <laughs> and and have a good chat with someone who's tried the system or is is also thinking of trying the system and find out what research they've done and and speak to as many people and look at I think it's actually harder now than when I did it because there's more choice. Um, but yeah, yeah, do a bit of research and and try and tailor it to to the crops that you have, you know how it might work into your rotation and and do it on a bit, you know, try and see if there's a way of doing one crop or one field or or something, you know, to do that. And I, I would also, yeah, my other bit of advice, I suppose, is is don't don't be put off by you'll get lots of negativity. I still get friends of mine who will say, but it doesn't really work, does it? You know, it, it it doesn't work all if it's wet, it doesn't work. Or if it's too dry, it doesn't work. You know, there's there's always that. But but that's just farming. I mean, you know, the weather can come along and change whatever you're doing very quickly and make a good thing look bad and a bad thing look good. So, uh, you know, those changes and, and just sort of keep the faith and, and give it a fair try if you're thinking of doing that. The rest of the the rest of the time, I would I would hesitate from giving anybody too much farming advice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I definitely do think a lot of people do underestimate how much knowledge you have because you're the ones who are doing it day in, day out. You're always seeing it. And you've probably done something that you realised was a really bad idea and then done something else which you thought was wrong at the time and realised it went very well and continued it. Yeah, um, and, so it and is... I would, yeah, and I did that as well at the beginning, you know, and I'd, I, I didn't, people often ask me, you know, when I show slides or anything, you know, have you not got any slides of crops that didn't work? And I think if I'd known that I was, somebody was actually going to ask me to do a presentation, I would maybe have taken some pictures at the beginning and, and would be more inclined to have pictures of things that didn't work very well, but you don't tend to forget them anyway. So I didn't I didn't really want to take pictures of them and have them in my phone. But but yeah, you know, I had spring barleys at the beginning. Spring barley was a difficult one, you know, to direct drill. And uh, yeah, I tried to do it without glyphosate um, for a few years. And one of the years we had a really wet, cold spring and the barley just sat in the ground and never moved. And the, every weed in the whole district seemed to come to that field and decide to grow to a band playing so I then was into that situation where I was throwing money at it you know trying to control the weeds trying to get the fertilizer right and and it was a really poor crop of spring barley that that reminded me that you know to get it to get it off to a good clean start and to hang off and wait till the weather comes right is far more important than than just sticking to what you thought you you should do so so yeah I think that that learning process is 
it's just what it is. I mean, you know, it's you just have to go through that sometimes. Yeah, you do. It just takes time. But you seem to have got it sus now, winning Farmers Weekly um, Album Farm of the Year, so you must be doing something right. <laughs> well, thank you for that. I get something right, yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, that was a that was a great experience. I mean, I, I I wasn't really the kind of person to enter these kind of competitions and things, but, but you know, that one came through. I still don't know who nominated me for it. Um, they just said somebody's nominated you, and I thought, well, if somebody's gone to the time of nominating me, I better. So I said, yes, I'll put the entry form in, and and I I put a bit of time filling it in, and then you send it off and think, well, you know, there's big farms all over the UK that are doing lots of different things that I'll never hear back, and then heard they were in the in the final three, which was a massive shock, and and. And we went down to London and and uh, genuinely, genuinely didn't expect to win. Just thought we've done well to make the final. We'll go down and have a great night. And and then the you know the the icing on the cake was was the surprise of winning it. So it, it, you know it was. I think I think it's a. I, I felt very honoured that they'd sort of fully bought into what I was trying to do here, and and that I've, I don't have a massive enterprise, but it is efficient. You know, and efficiency is often mistaken for size, but you know, efficiency and an efficiency of of my own time, but also efficiency of the machinery and efficiency of my sheds. You know, and that comes through the rotation. Um, and I think they really, but and and it, you know, Berwickshire is a great area to farm. It looked great, you know, and we had the same on the Missouri Open Day. You know, the guys came up and went, wow. What an amazing place this is, you know, and they meant Berwickshire, not just Green now, you know, and and they said they asked if the road was closed because they'd come from they stayed at Allenton and they came on and they said didn't meet anybody on the road is that road closed and they said no that's just that's just rural Berwickshire but shh, don't tell anybody because we want to keep it this way but so you know I think I think I'm lucky to farm in the place of farm but yeah the Farmers Weekly thing has been a great experience. It really has. And, and I would say to anybody, you know, if they think of nominating somebody, do that because it could make a big difference to them. And if you are nominated, yeah, put the entry in because you just never know what might happen, you know. Excellent. It's been fantastic speaking to you today, Neil. Thank you for your time. No, thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Neil. Next up, we have an update from the field. Hi, my name is Mark Basher-Gibbs and I'm a consultant with SAC Consulting. As we're all very well aware, we're coming into a very much later period than usual for getting spring crops into the ground. And for the majority of growers, it'll be into April before ground conditions allow for any kind of field work and seabed preparation. Spring beans will ideally have been sown in March and there may be a few that have managed to get beans in the ground. And for crops like spring barley, spring wheat and oats, most crops will be sown through April, with the last to go in possibly as late as early May. In a late season like this, final yields will be influenced to a greater degree by the extent to which plants can tiller before moving into their reproductive growth stages. Soil moisture and good seed to soil contact is required for good germination. However, where soil is very wet, such as a season like this, oxygen becomes a limiting factor which can reduce germination. One way we can help mitigate the downsides of late sowing this year is to pay particular attention to seed rates, so we optimise the number of ears per metre square come harvest. 
Of course, we know spring barley has a better capacity for tillering, while spring oats and spring wheats less so. When calculating seed rates through April, aim to establish 350 plants per metre square for spring barley, 360 plants per metre square for spring oats, and 380 plants per metre squared for spring wheat. Your final seed rate calculation should account for the seed's 1,000 grain weight, the germination percentage, and your expectations for establishment rate. As a general rule of thumb, increase seed rates by 50 seeds per metre squared from your original calculation for each week that sowing is delayed beyond the first week of April. This will help achieve target fertile tiller numbers through to harvest. Thank you for joining us today and a big thank you to our speaker, Neil. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please make sure you subscribe and follow the podcast so you see future episodes. We'll see you again next time. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.